I don't think that the James Craig campaign is unhappy with what happened. And in fact, oh, what they got out of it, B-roll that will probably be aired on Fox News. He thought, I assume in this case, it was necessary to contact the Chinese and say, look, nothing silly is happening here. We're not we're not going to be making any military action on you. And, and I think that's really appropriate. I, I think if he didn't make the call, it would be pretty irresponsible. During this delay, Larry Nasser was able to abuse 100 additional victims who are now survivors. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Former Detroit Police Chief James Craig's gubernatorial announcement did not go as planned Tuesday morning on Bell Isle. I got one thing to say. I'm running for governor. I'm running for governor of the state of Michigan. Running for governor of the state of Michigan. When a group of protesters surrounded Chief Craig and followed him all the way up to the podium where he stood briefly before heading back to his SUV. Chad Livingood from Cranes, Detroit, was on the island and watched it all as it happened and went on with Kevin Deet soon after the fiasco. Oh, a bit of a chaotic scene. So uh, a little before uh, James Craig was start, supposed to start his press conference at 10 a.m., um, a group of uh, Black Lives Matter, Detroit Will Breathe protesters started walking down uh, right at Sunset Point uh, on, on Belle Isle. Uh, real, you know, the bucolic scene, and everyone, everyone knows uh that has the backdrop of downtown with it. And, uh, and they, they started protesting and then they just kind of walked and marched right out into the podium area where the press conference is supposed to, was supposed to take place. After about five, 10 minutes at most, um, James Craig finally entered, uh, the area, walked in with bodyguards up to the, to the area, attempted to speak at the podium while he was being shouted at by, uh, by protesters behind him, mostly protesting his record as a police chief of Detroit. And after about 30 seconds or so, he kind of aborted the mission there and uh, and started hurriedly walking back uh, to his SUV uh, out on the road, and uh, and his uh, entourage took him back there. And they got, in the, they got in the SUV and sped away. Now they have moved the press conference for the launch of James Cray's campaign to the former UAW Training Center building over at 200 Walker, which is, um, unlike uh, uh, Belle Isle, a, a gated office building. So uh, t- describe for us uh, what that seems. Obviously, that's a beautiful backdrop to have your announcement that you want to be governor, that you're the former Detroit police chief and you want to be governor of the state of Michigan. Typically, when you go to those, there's sort of some sort of security in place to keep people away from the podium. The pictures I'm seeing, people were right up, right up at the podium, almost uh, like he, he never really had a chance there. No, I mean, he didn't, and it became pretty clear that these protesters were taking over this press conference. I don't think that the James Craig campaign is unhappy with what happened and transpired. In fact, what they got out of it, uh, Kevin, frankly, is a video B-roll that will probably be aired on Fox News when James Craig's uh, on there talking about his campaign for governor, which he's been making a lot of appearances there in the last few months. Um, this is this is this is good optics if you're trying to raise money and win a Republican primary. Essentially, uh, try to try to appeal to the uh, to the base, particularly in the suburbs. Um, there was a lot of Craig supporters on hand shouting at uh, at these protesters. These protesters are shouting back. It did get a little tense there for a minute, uh, but uh, but it, but and then and he had bodyguards who were surrounding him, and they were there was a little bit of. Little bit of pushing, I would say, up next to that podium, but, um, 
after just a few, uh, you know, like I said, 20, 30 seconds at most, it was pretty clear he was not going to be allowed to speak. And so uh, uh, James Craig uh, took off for his, uh, for his SUV. But if you're talking optics and you're talking about a police chief who's tough on crime and, and kept the city of Detroit safe during protests and he's has to, you know, backpedal and hurry away and, and get whisked off in a car, um, those optics aren't great. Yeah, it depends on what you're trying to use the optics for. Uh, and uh, I would imagine, like I said, the, 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 his campaign probably doesn't hate it. Um, they, they, they probably relish some of it a little bit. Um, and that, that they can use this as, uh, as um, you know, look at what BLM did to James Craig, you know, and they, you know, that I, I can see the, the narrative already forming and it was already sort of some of the talk among uh, the uh, Craig supporters on the scene there. So, um, and yeah, at the same time, yeah, tough on crime is a big part of James Craig's uh, uh, campaign for governor and, uh, and, and making it, uh, making it kind of clear he's, he's going to, um, you know, be uh, sort of no nonsense on crime. That's, I mean, he's, he's already made it clear that, hey, look, Detroit did not burn last summer uh, during, the, uh, during the BLM protests. Um, you know, as, and so, yeah, it, 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 that's a big part of uh, what he's, he's going for. All right. Well, uh, we, we know one of uh, his problems is name recognition. A lot of people don't know James Craig around the state, uh, but this may help uh, the, a little more, a little more free press uh, based on this uh, inability to announce. And uh, we'll we'll see if that helps him. A new book by Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Robert Costa makes claims that soon after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, concerned about Trump's stability, made secret phone calls to his counterparts in China, assuring them that they would not initiate an attack while Trump was in office. So was this treason, or was it well within Miley's rights and powers to make such a phone call? Retired four-star General Jack Keane talked to Chris Renwick. I would believe that this is a bit of a, a breach of protocol. This would be, uh, uh, you know, working around the chain of command. Is, is that accurate? No. It's quite routine um, for a, a chairman of of the Joint Chiefs to talk to his counterpart, which is normally referred to as the Chief of Defense. We don't use that term. In other words, he's the senior military general in uh, in another country. Mm-hmm. We do it with our allies routinely, and we do it with our adversaries. And I know General Milley uh, has a decent relationship uh with the chief of defense of Russia, I, I didn't know much about his relationship with the chief of defense of China, but I know that regardless of the, the chairmans who are serving, uh, this is an important part of their, of their job. <clears throat> and, and, and they're reacting to uh, some piece of intelligence, as you, as you described, that they saw, and I, and I suspect it's fairly sensitive because it didn't involve any Chinese deployments that had to do more about Chinese concerns and uh, that level of insight in terms of intelligence uh, is is quite valuable and and certainly obviously very sensitive. But uh, from what I understand, Secretary Esper saw the same intelligence and he, uh, Secretary Esper was Secretary of Defense at the time, excuse me, Mm -hmm. and he directed his policy people to call their counterparts and make certain that they understood that their concerns were unfounded. And, uh, and General Milley was doing essentially the same thing. I called a Trump official um, yesterday to gain some insight into this, 
and uh, that official told me that look at um, during that time frame, that entire period prior to the election and after, he said uh, I would have been involved in any uh, national security issue dealing with China. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing who he is, he would have been in the room. And he said sure. it just didn't happen. Uh, it, nothing uh, out of the White House. This was precipitated by uh, intelligence. So, uh, and, and I mean, look, everything that you're saying uh, uh, has has seemed to uh, uh, come out from uh, General Milley's office. And I mean, the report I saw on Fox News, uh, they say that there were about 15 people present for the calls. Uh, there were multiple note takers present, said the calls were both conducted with the full knowledge, as you mentioned, of then Defense Secretary Mark Esper and acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller. Um, and, and General Milley's office has has released a, a, a couple of statements saying that the conversations are vital to reducing tensions and avoiding unintended consequences or conflict, maintaining that the calls were coordinated with high level defense officials, uh, also saying that uh, there were calls made with both China and Russia, and they remain vital to improving mutual understanding of the U.S. national security interests in both of those countries. So as as the the intelligence that was being received potentially by by General Milley, uh, he thought, I assume in this case, it was necessary to contact the Chinese and say, look, nothing silly is happening here. We're not we're not going to be making any military action on you. Yeah. And, and I think that's really appropriate. I, I think if he didn't make the call, he'd be pretty irresponsible. So, and, and these relationships uh, are, are very important, uh, certainly with allies, but also with uh, with adversaries for these reasons. Because you know, so that's why we have the relationship to make certain mm-hmm. that there is no misinterpretation. You know, people are saying, "Well, we should see the transcript." Listen, let's use our head here. I mean, this is. This is an ongoing serving chairman with an ongoing serving chief of defense uh, in an adversary country, China. And we don't want to be revealing uh, that conversation out in the public and just blow up the relationship. You know, that doesn't make any sense. No, General, I think you're right. So I I, I guess not only is this much ado about nothing, it seems, it it actually uh, was potentially... uh, incredibly helpful and perhaps needed if the Chinese were getting a little antsy, uh, perhaps anticipating some strike. So it, it sounds like uh, General Milley perhaps was in the in the complete right here. Yeah. I don't see any issue here with undermining the civilian control of the military. I, I, I tell you, for most of our senior military leaders, that is such a third rail. We have such strong feelings about it. Sure. Uh, you know, that that uh, you would hear a completely different reaction from me if, if I thought uh, there was something there. There is another lesson here that we keep, we have to keep relearning it. I mean, if you're serving in the government, um, you shouldn't be talking to the, to the media about sensitive classified issues that have taken place in that government. Mm-hmm. I don't know who was talking to, uh, to the authors, uh, and I guess the reporters are interpreting what the authors are saying because they, they, they saw the book. But a lot of times this, this stuff gets sensationalized a little bit yeah. for all the obvious reasons that we know. 
Star gymnast Simone Biles, Ellie Raceman, Michaela Moroni, and Maggie Nichols testified at a U.S. Senate hearing about the FBI's mishandling of an investigation into the abuse they suffered at the hands of Dr. Larry Nasser. Former U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider was the first prosecutor to come across the allegations in the state of Michigan, and he joined Kevin Dietz. What we have here is we have a situation where the Justice Department's Inspector General has concluded in a report that the FBI knew about the allegations about Larry Nasser, and they just didn't take it seriously. They didn't report it to local law enforcement, even though it was child abuse. They didn't report it to the Michigan FBI, even though they should have. And so yesterday we heard these four Olympic gymnasts who suffered under Larry Nasser, and what they said is really revealing. They said that the FBI didn't even contact them to interview them for over a year. It, it, it did, they didn't hear them out. And unfortunately, during this delay by the FBI, Larry Nasser was able to abuse 100 additional victims who are now survivors. And that is, as you can only imagine, this testimony was riveting. And it was horrifying because these victims really have their chance to speak out now about the abuses and how the FBI failed to take the action that they should have. It's so troubling because the FBI is the premier law enforcement agency in this country. Uh, people look to the FBI as just being top shelf uh, all, all the way around. And so many FBI agents, uh, and many I know and you know, are, are phenomenal law enforcement officials. And, and to hear something like this, it just, it, 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 it's hard because it, it, it's hard to think that professionals in the FBI could just ignore something so important as young kids being abused by someone or allegedly at that time being abused by someone and not take any action. Uh, you were, you were in the seat, you were the, uh, U S attorney for the, uh, Eastern Michigan of, uh, Eastern district of Michigan. Um, when did you first find out about this case and what was your personal experience as far as the professionalism of the people you worked with? So I can tell you, first and foremost, the FBI is an outstanding organization in many, many ways. And the FBI agents in Michigan do a great job. And that that is my experience with them. But your question is about my experience with the Nasser case. I can tell you that I was the first state prosecutor to hear the name Larry Nasser in this investigation. And this all started in the state attorney general's office when we got a report. And I went over to meet with the uh, Michigan State University police. And we found out more about Larry Nasser and what he was doing. And within a few weeks, the FBI executed a search warrant on Larry Nasser's house, and they uncovered child pornography, abusive material uh, that he had in his possession. And then he was charged. And then great prosecutors like Angie Povolitis took this case to to trial and or to, in, through the police stages, and really worked closely with the, the survivors and the victims. What we heard, though yesterday was really sad because Michaela Maroney, for example, the testimony that she gave was so stunning. She testified that she was molested by Nasser and, and she explained that she received horrible abuse from, from him while in Tokyo for the Olympics. And after pouring out this heartbreaking story to the FBI agent, the FBI agent coldly asked, is that all? I mean, that's just not how, not how you respect survivors. And and fortunately, we, we had some mistakes here with the FBI in Indianapolis, and now it really impacts these, these women 
And the FBI now has to look and see what corrective measures they have to take moving forward to make sure that this never happens again. Macomb County Executive Mark Hackle has no plans to enforce a vaccine mandate for the 2,500 county employees he oversees and tells Nolan Finley of the Detroit News that he's not a fan of mandatory testing. Paul W. Smith had Hackle on his show, and he had one burning question for him. Have you been vaccinated? Uh, That's the question I think uh, I'll answer to those that uh, I want to tell. And again, I I find it interesting. People will tell, tell you whether they have or haven't. Uh, but uh, I'll share that information with those that I think it's necessary to share it with when the time comes. So I'm, I'm one of those that truly believes, you know, whether it's the, the science of the vaccine, the mask and all that, I don't get into that argument. You know, I'm, I'm into this whole idea that, you know, what, what happened to people's freedom of, uh, you know, their, their medical information, of being their own, uh, making decisions. Um, you know, this isn't required by law yet. Yet people want to bully people and tell them, you know, you better get vaccinated if you don't, you know, uh, you're going to be forced to do it. You know, it started off as an option, and then it became, you know, an opportunity to win a million dollars. And now all of a sudden, you know, the president has lost his patience. And you look around the state, not one municipality, not one government entity is mandating it. So if it's really that serious, and from the governor on down, there isn't a county, there isn't a municipality, there isn't the, the, the governor of the state that has mandated vaccines. Yet for some reason, the president has decided that his patience has run out and now he wants to force it upon not only federal employees, but local units of government. Well, if it's that important, why haven't local units of government or their leaders decided to take this on on their own? If it's that important, why are they waiting for the president to tell them what to do with their employees? You you wear a seatbelt, right? Always. Yeah, good. Uh, do you get flu shots? Um, again, medical information. I'll tell you about my seatbelt, but I, I don't disclose <laughs> okay. my medical information to now, people. I, okay. I find it interesting. I've, you've never asked that question before on any of no, these radio I, shows. No, I've never, I've never felt the and, need to and, ask it before, and, just and trying it, to get a feel for where you are yeah, in all this. Yeah, and I'm not offended by it, because I'm, I'm very proud to say that, you know what, I protect my information. Again, it's no different than being a police officer, you know, when I would ride around. I didn't have a right to pull somebody over because there was no, no requirement by law for them to be driving, uh, you know, a certain way. If I didn't like something, I didn't just pull them over arbitrarily. There had to be a reason as to why I'm asking them something. And quite honestly, even this police officer, nobody had to tell me. You know, even if they committed a crime, they didn't have to tell me they committed a crime. So I find it interesting when people want to just freely give the information, which they have a right to. But by gosh, on the same, you know, in the same regard, people have a right to protect their own medical information. And so if it becomes required by law, then that's a different story. Then again, then you have to provide the information. Or if it's a requirement for you to, to go on a cruise ship or to go to a certain event because, you know, that particular establishment requires it, uh, then you got to make a choice as to whether you want to tell them, you know, your, your medical status of uh, being vaccinated or not. But until such time, you know, I don't just really tell people what's going on with me medically. That'll do it for Pod Sui this week. For full podcasts or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.